This is 69 The Podcast. I'm Dave Haynes. 69 has been covering the digital signage industry since the dawn of man, first online and now as a podcast. The goal on here is to make listeners aware of interesting companies, smart people, and new technology developments, all of them meaningful in making digital signage projects happen. I try to help listeners understand sometimes complicated subjects and why they should care. The podcasts are free and I try to get a new one out weekly, but things happen now and then. The 69 Podcast has been gratefully sponsored and supported since the start by Jeremy Gavin and the fine folks at ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. ScreenFeed makes beautiful-looking, totally automated content for signage and digital out-of-home networks. Check them out at ScreenFeed.com. 69 has been around since 2006, and the publication and podcast are now owned by Spectrio, which provides customer engagement solutions for business. You can find them at Spectrio.com. When I was at the big ISC Pro AV trade show a few weeks ago, I yet again saw several products that were billed as holograms, even though they didn't even loosely fit the technical definition. I'm always paying attention to news and social media posts that use that terminology, and once in a while I come across something that actually does start to align with the true definition of holograms and holography. Like Voxon, which operates out of Adelaide, Australia, Started years ago as a beer drinking and tinkering maker project in a garage, Voxon now has a physical product for sale that generates visuals with depth that viewers can walk around and see from different angles. That product is mainly being bought by universities and R&D teams at companies to play with and learn. But the long game for Voxon is to produce or be the engine for other products that really do live up to the mainstream Hollywood-driven notion of holograms. I had a great chat with co-founder and CEO Gavin Smith. Gavin, thank you very much for joining me. I know you're up in Scotland, but you are based in Adelaide, Australia, correct? Yeah, yes, that's right. I'm, a, I'm originally from Scotland. I grew up here, spent my life, my, my first part of my life in the north of Scotland in Elgin. And, uh, and then, I, then I went to university in um, Paisley in, in Glasgow. And then I eventually, after working for 10 years in the banking sector, I, I emigrated to Australia and I've lived in Adelaide for the last 14 years. That's uh, quite a climate shift. Yes, it is a climate shift. I was speaking to my wife uh, yesterday or the day before, and it was about 40 degrees there just now. They're having a heat wave, whereas up in Elgin here, it's about one at the moment. So yeah, I'm thinking, why are you there in February? But on the other hand, why would you want to be in Adelaide if it's plus 40 Celsius? Yeah, I, I, I quite like the cold. Um, I, I prefer to be in this temperature right now than 40 degrees, that's for sure. Well, I just I just spent uh, 45 minutes with my snow machine clearing 25 centimeters of snow <laughs> off my driveway. So, yeah, I uh, I wouldn't mind being in Adelaide today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, I can have the best of both worlds. I'm heading back there in about a week and a half's time. Oh, okay. Cool down a bit by then. So, um, I was intrigued by your company. I saw a, a couple of LinkedIn posts with uh, embedded videos and thought, well, that's interesting and. I, I wanted to speak more. So can you tell me what Voxon does? Yes, sure. So Voxon is a company that started about, 2000, about 2012, 2013, and it came out of two joint research projects, one which was me and my friend Will. Based in Adelaide, we had a Thursday night lab session, as we called it, where we went to the shed and we drank a few beers <laughs> and we, we tried to invent things, you know, it was a bit... Is it weird science esque? And um, we so this wasn't exactly a lab. It was a shed. Let's face it. Well, it had it had lots of with a beer fridge. It was a beer fridge, and there was 
a lot of machinery, which various stage of repair, we used, to, we used to get hard rubbish off the right side of the road in Adelaide and take it apart and, and see what we could make. It was just amateur invention hour, really. But it was at the start of that project, we uh, we built fairly rudimentary machines, CNC machines, and, and we took apart laser scanners and just, just inquisitive about how they work from a mechanical point of view. But that then turned into more of a let's see how far we can push ourselves and learn new stuff and we've been inspired by sci-fi star wars all those sort of things so we said let's try and make the sort of 3d display that we'd seen in the movies and um those science fiction movies always had the same type of display and that wasn't a screen it wasn't a headset it was always some sort of floating image that you could walk around and you could look at from any direction and the common the common name for that in popular media was a holographic display. That's what people called it. So that's that's what we set out to to build, and um, we built. We, we very quickly figured out that this type of display had to be something to do with projecting images or dots onto some sort of surface that moved, and that's because in order to render these little dots that make up the image in thin, you know, in inside a, a space that had physical dimensions. You couldn't make the light just appear on air, you know, or we figured you, you might be able to do it with some sort of gas or some sort of mm -hmm. lasers and things like that. But the way we approached it was starting off by just shaking business cards back and forwards and, and shining lasers on them. And then that made a line because of persistence of vision, you know, just mm -hmm. like if you have a, uh, I mean, I always think that um, Neanderthal man invented the volumetric display because they probably waved burning embers around on sticks at nighttime and drew those patterns in this, you know, in the air. And those are, mm -hmm. those are, those are patterns where really um, they only existed because of persistence of vision and the, the extrusion of light through a volume of space. And so that's what we decided to do. And we realized if you could draw a line, then if you could control the laser and turn it off and on again, you could draw a dot. And so we did that by cutting the laser beam with a, a rotating CD that was stuck on a high-speed drill with some sticky tape on it. We kind of chopped the laser into little bits. And there, by controlling the speed of the laser, we ended up having a, a single dot, which we which we was referred to as a voxel. That's what we Googled, a, you know, a dot in space as a voxel. And then we kind of extrapolated from there and said, well, if we're building these images out of little pixels of light or voxels, we need more and more and more of these dots. And when you do the maths, you, you quickly realize that you need millions of dots of light for <laughs> volume to make an image. And that's the difficult part. Uh, and really, that started us down the road of experimenting with video projectors, with lasers, with, with all sorts of things, and, and more and more advanced moving surfaces. And eventually, we made a small helical display using a vacuum-formed helix that we, uh, we, we, we basically made in the kitchen, in Will's wife's kitchen when she was out in the oven and uh yeah we created a very small image of an elephant you might call it a hologram at the time that's what we called it at the time but it was a volumetric swept surface image the the, the terminology I'll, I'll go into a bit more detail but at the time it was just a hologram to us uh and we didn't know we thought this was amazing and we'd never seen it before so we put a video of it on youtube and some guys in america who were unbeknown to us doing the same project got in contact with us and uh push came to shove, we decided to join forces and form Voxon. And uh, that was back in 2013. Hmm. So when you created this little elephant, yeah. was that a, like a big aha moment? Like, oh my God, we figured this out? 
Yes, very much so. We, we, we believed at the time we were the first people to do this. In fact, we weren't, uh, but we were the first time we'd seen this type of image. And it was, it was, it was literally spine tingling amazing, you know, to see a, a truly three dimensional object that you could look down from above, from the sides, from any angle. And it, and it measured, and it, it filled a space the same way as you or I fill a space in the, in the physical world. You could measure its length, its breadth, its height. Uh, and even its volume in in gallons or liters it had a it had a um a tangible existence in the physical world and not on a screen as as other three d images tend to do well, at this point was this a stationary object uh yes at this point the elephant was stationary and the way i'd created the elephant was well we figured out in order to make this elephant we firstly needed to have the swept surface moving so that was the the helical screen which was spinning at about 900 RPM on a very small electric motor. And then we had a video projector that we managed to get going at about, about 1,200 frames per second. And in order to create the images, which were cross sections, helical cross sections of an elephant, that was all done um, offline. So the way I approached that was we used software called 3D Studio Max, which is a design software. And in that I modeled a helix and an elephant. And I then intersected the helix with the elephant in the software rotated the helix digitally and then i rendered out the the resultant cross-section the boolean operation of one on the other and this is like taking a you know a, a drill and drilling a hole into the ground and looking at the you know just it's just a core a helical core sample so really it was like a ct scan of this elephant but just slice at a time and then i rendered out those images uh, to a file i wrote some software to convert it to uh, a new video format that we had to invent to compress all that data into this high speed image stream and then projected that onto the helix. Now, of course, the timing of the images and the rotation of the helix was not in sync. And so much like an old CRT screen that's that, where the vertical shift is not dialed in, the, the elephant would drift out the top of the, of the display and, and come back in the bottom. And at that point, we knew that th this was all about a combination of mathematics optics uh, precision timing uh, and and to make it interactive we'd have to write a real-time computer program capable of generating these images in real time and that was the next part of the puzzle so this was a working prototype basically this was a working prototype yeah and how, how um, big was it uh, the helix was very small it was about five centimeters in diameter about mm -hmm. about an inch and a half in diameter and about an inch tall but because the projector that we used was a Pico projector at the time, and it was about half the size of a pack of cards, right. this tiny, tiny, tiny little thing that we got off the internet from Texas Instruments, <laughs> and uh, and you could focus it at about one centimeter away. So all those all those little pixels uh, were were infinitesimally small. So it was a very high resolution display and very very small. Um, and we were using the we, we we realized to get these number of frames per second, we'd have to take advantage of one of the, the most incredible pieces of engineering ever conceived, in my opinion, and that is the DLP chip from Texas Instruments invented by Larry Hornbeck, who passed away several years ago, sadly. And that is an array of mirrors that is uh, that is grown on a chip using photolithography, the same process as you create microchips. And that array of mirrors can contains upwards of a million mirrors arranged in a, a two-dimensional array, and they can tilt on and off physically. Uh, about 30,000 times a second. And that's really, that's called a, uh, 
it's, it's called a MEMS, a microelectromechanical display, or, mm. or, or, or in optical terms, a spatial light modulator. So it's something that turns light on and off at ultra high speed. And, and those on off cycles are what give us our Z resolution on the display. So that's the slices that make up the display. Wow. So where are you at now with the company now that you, 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 you've formed it and you've grown it? Uh, what's happened since that very first yeah, so, uh, prototype elephant? Yeah, so the prototype elephant, following that, uh, we realized that my programming skills were not up to the task of building a year of finite. And I'd, I'd, I'd spent 10 years as a COBOL programmer in, in banking, and I wasn't up to the task of writing what was needed, which was a low-level <laughs> graphics engine. This didn't need a mainframe? Fast. This didn't need a mainframe, no. And we couldn't afford a mainframe if we, even if we wanted one. So, so we, we, we looked up on the internet to see who we could find in terms of programming uh, to join the company. And there was two programmers who stood out, or they were kind of referred to as the top two programmers in the world. And they were John Carmack of, of ID and now Oculus. And then there was Ken Silverman who wrote the graphics engine for Duke Nukem back in the, the late 90s. Wow. And so we uh, contacted Ken. John wasn't available. Uh, and we contacted Ken and did a demo to him at Brown University in, uh, in Rhode Island, where he was working subsequently as a, as a basically a computer programmer teacher with his dad, who was the dean of engineering there. And Ken really liked what we were doing uh, and his understanding of mathematics and voxels and, and 3D rendering really uh, made him think this was something he wanted to be involved in. So he joined our company as a founder and chief computer scientist. And he's, he's, uh, he's, been, he's led the development of the core rendering engine. Um, we call it the Voxon Photonic Engine. And, uh, and it's, that's the, really our IP. It's our core IP or part of it. It's the ability to take any 3D graphics from a third-party source, from Unity, from... C program or something else and turn it into high-speed projected images which can be uh, processed in such a way to de-warp them when they're projected so they're the right size. We use dithering in real time to make color possible which is similar to newsprint, CMY newsprint in a newspaper uh, and this is all this all basically allows us to project images onto any type of moving surface now and and do it in real time and make applications that uh, are much bigger and extensible so we can plug it into other programs or have people write their own programs for our displays. So you've kind of emerged from being an R&D effort in the shed to a, a real company to having working prototypes and now you're uh, an operating company with product, right? Uh, kind of. I like to say we've emerged, but I very much say we're still crossing the chasm, so to speak, in terms of <laughs> technology landscape so mm -hmm. uh, after that initial project uh, initial sorry initial prototype we we spent many years battering our heads together trying to work as a team with america and eventually we will and i decided to raise some money in australia and set up the company there we raised about a million and a half australian it's about a million us dollars back in 2017 and that was enough to employ some extra engineers and business development and experienced COO and and start working on our first product um which was the VX1 now the VX1 was a different type of display we decided to not do the helix back then and we decided to make a 
different type of display, and that was a reciprocating display. And so we invented a, a way of moving a screen up and down very efficiently using resonance. So the, the, it's the same, I, I guess, mechanical, mechanical um, thing that exhibits that all objects have, and that is at a certain frequency, they start vibrating if you if if there's a, a driving vibration force. So the Tacoma Bridge falling down when it, when the wind blew at the right speed was an example of when resonance destroyed something, but uh, an opera singer breaking a glass at the right pitch is another example of something that vibrates hmm. due to this driving force. And so we found out that if we built a spring, a screen which was mounted on springs that was of a very particular weight and the springs were a very particular constant of of uh, young's modulus we could vibrate that subsystem and the screen would vibrate up and down very efficiently and very fast fast enough that you couldn't see the screen and so that's what the vx1 became and onto the back of that screen we project images and those images form a swept volume and, and the vx1 has got a volume of about 18 centimeters by 18 by 8 so that's about i think it's about seven inches square by about three inches tall and we have a single projector mounted inside of that and a computer and a, a ton of electronics that keeps it all in sync. And we built a software uh, API for it and a library of programs that come built in. So it's an off the shelf. You turn it on and it works type of display. And so we, we built that back in 2017. And over the last five years, it's evolved into something which is very reliable and, and uh, is now you know, you can't tell them apart when they're manufactured at the, at the start. Each one might look different with hot glue and duct tape and all the rest of it. But now we have a complete digital workflow. Um, we we outsource most of the, the manufacture of the parts and we do a final assembly, software, QC and, and packaging up and then shipping them out to, to companies. And we've sold probably about 120 VX1s globally since 2017. And those have gone out to companies all around the world, um, Sony, MIT, Harvard, CMU, yeah, Unity, uh, BAE Systems, Verizon, Ericsson, all, a lot of companies. And they've bought them and they're exploring. They generally go into explorative use cases. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, it sounds like yeah. they're going into labs as opposed to uh, stores. Yeah, they're not going into stores. So we're not. This is an early. This is a kind. This is akin to, um, I suppose, it's an evaluate. The VX1 is really an evaluation system. It's not prime right. time ready for running all day long. And that's the reason for that is it has a vibration component to it, and so uh, and also the re the refresh rate of the VX1 is 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 actually variable within the volume. It's it's hard to explain, but the 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 apparent volume refresh rate is 30 hertz in the middle and 15 hertz at the poles, and so it has a little bit of flicker. Uh, but in a dark environment, it's really spellbinding, and uh, and it's actually well, it has actually been used in museums. So there's some in Germany in a in a science museum there. It's been used in an art exhibition exhibition in the Jeu de Paume in in Paris, which was the art was created by David Levine at uh, MIT Media Lab, um, and it's it's it, it's frequently used in universities, and it pops up in all sorts of trade shows, and it's a, it always it's always a talking point, and it always gathers a crowd around it, and and what we like to say with a volumetric display, uh, from a marketing point of view, I suppose, or really a description of what it is, is it's really it's really about creating a digital campfire. That's the kind of user experience. It's gathering people around something intimately in a way that they can still have eye contact and maintain a conversation and each person has their own, their own 
perspective and view of the 3D data. Mm-hmm. The, the, the scale you're describing is still quite small, and that seems to be what I've experienced with uh, when I've seen demonstrations at uh, the SID trade show of, of uh, light field displays. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're all like the size of a pop bottle at, at, at yeah. most, you know, yeah. or soda bottle, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a function of just the, the technology that you, 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 you can't just make these things big. Well, the you can make them bigger, and we have since that point. The, the the biggest display that we've made so far was one that we just delivered to BA Systems in Frimley in uh, near London, and that one was a we've gone back to a helical display for the, that particular one, and it's forty six centimeters in diameter and um, eight centimeters deep. So that's about uh, it's about nine times the volume of the VX one. So that's that's a much bigger display. Now you can, with a swept volume, you can go as big as you like within the realms of physics. And that what, what I mean by that is with a rotating display, you can make the display as big as something that can rotate at a vo- at a speed that's fast enough to make the the um, the medium kind of disappear. So if you think about propellers and fans, for example, mm-hmm. um, I've seen pedestal fans that are a meter in diameter running faster than we run our display. And that that's with, with rotating displays, it's easier to do because you have, you have, you have um, conservation of momentum and you have inertia, which drives the display around and yet you can rotate the volume as well. have it enclosed so that you're not generating airflow like a fan does. So for example, if you have a, a propeller shaped blade encased in a cylindrical, um, enclosure and that enclosure is spinning then you don't get the air resistance you get with a fan and you can and and the display that we made for ba systems is 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 ultimately silent uh and and that's really uh and flicker free because we're running at exactly 30 hertz throughout the volume which means you don't get flicker but reciprocating displays ones that go up and down scaling them is more of a challenge because Mm -hmm. you're having to push the air out the way up and down and as as the size of the screen moving up and down gets bigger, if you're projecting from behind, for example, you also have to start considering things like the flexing of the substrate that you're projecting onto. For a front projection display, where you project down from the top, we can go bigger because you can make a very lightweight, thicker screen uh, out of exotic materials. And those are materials that are very light, but very stiff. Uh, things like aerogels and um, uh, foamed material, foamed metals, uh, very lightweight um, sort of honeycombed structures. So that way you can go bigger, but we may need to move into the realms of using uh, reduced atmospheric displays, uh, partial vacuums, things like that to reduce, mm. the, to reduce the air resistance or using materials that are air permeable, such as meshes that move up and down very quickly. And we have done experiments with those and found that we can go, we can go a lot bigger. Um, However, with the current projection systems that we're using, you then have to increase the brightness because the brightness of the image is also stretched out through a volume. So uh, if, you imagine, if you imagine a home cinema projector projecting three or 4,000 lumens, you have to consider that each of the images that it's projecting is, is pretty much evenly, use, evenly lit in terms of all the pixels that you're projecting. Whereas what we're doing is we're projecting these thousands of images but we're only illuminating the cross section of every object. So we're maybe only using 1% of the, 
of the available brightness of the projector at any one time or not unless you know unless you project a solid slice all the way across it's mm -hmm. really you're building up this construct which is uh how i explain it to people is it's very similar to 3d printing if you look at how a 3d printer works we're doing exactly the same thing except we're printing using light instead of you know pla and we're printing thousands and thousands of times faster the thing that for in my world in digital science the thing that always gets operation people nervous is moving parts mm -hmm. and yeah. uh yeah. that directly affects reliability and longevity how do you address that yeah so the vx1 is 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 a good is a good example of moving parts in a display that isn't yet ready for long long running and mm. when i say long running we we do have it in exhibitions but we have recently engineered it in such a way that the parts that may break or will break are the four springs that drive this the machine and those have been engineered to resonate at a particular frequency now after several hundred million extensions of those springs they can fatigue break and they will fatigue break and that's something that we're working on and that might be a month or three weeks of running 24 by 7. And so we've made those springs user replaceable. You can you can change them in you know two or three minutes for a fresh set. So that's kind of like a it's almost like the mechanical profile of a something like an inkjet printer where you have to change the cartridge every so often. Right. And we find with me mechanical stuff, people accept mechanical things in their lives as long as the the the, the maintenance slash utility ratio is at a level that they can accept, you know, bicycles, cars, things like that. You, you maintain them and, and as long as their utility outweighs the inconvenience of the repair. Now mm -hmm. for projection equipment and things like that and, and, and digital signage, there are a lot of two-dimensional technologies that are ultra reliable on those things, you know, big LED panels, uh, you know, 2D video projectors and, and, and just lighting, you know, you can turn them on and leave them and you should be okay. So in in our rotating displays, and we're going, to, we have another rotating display that we're working on, which we can't discuss just now because it's still under NDA. Is 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 the part of the reason we're we're going down that rabbit hole or going down that design sort of path, because we can make rotating displays which are very reliable. You know, they're effectively like a record player. You turn it on and it spins around, and you could leave it and come back in three weeks, and it would still be spinning around. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's part of, and also a rotating display if properly manufactured with intolerances won't cause the vibration. And vibration is really the thing that can cause the, the, the issues because vibration can lead to fatigue failure in electrical components, electronic components, um, you know, small cracks in circuits and things like that. So for, from our point of view, we're going towards uh, rotating mechanics because that ultimately allows us to make things which are reliable enough to be used in a wide range of industries including mm -hmm. digital signage, advertising, medical imaging, and, and gaming, and many, many more. For over a decade, ScreenFeed has been the reliable choice for beautifully designed, licensed content such as news and weather. We handle over 27 million requests a day to deliver dynamic content to 200,000 screens across the globe. Now, we bring you ScreenFeed Connect, a no-code solution that makes complex content projects easy. Projects that used to take our designers and developers weeks became a to-do we could complete before lunch. The easy-to-use browser-based tool leverages pre-built data connections and ready-made widgets to give you the power to design with data. 
create team member profiles, schedules, tenant directories, progress boards, featured products, or anything that leverages your data. Discover how Connect empowers you to complete projects faster at screenfeed.com. In my world, there are all kinds of companies who are saying that they are they have holographic products of yeah. some kind or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as somebody who's doing something that sounds very much like a hologram yeah. or, or close to what mm-hmm. we thought of when we all saw Star Wars, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what do you think of those things? Uh, you know, I, I don't like to be a troll, first of all, on yeah. LinkedIn. And, and so I try and shy away from saying, look, that's rubbish. You know, But what I try and do is, is uh, politely point out how things work when it's not clear from someone's post how something might work or, or where it's misleading. Now, if, if you look at the term hologram, um, the, it, it comes from the Greek holos and grammis, which means the whole message. And, and in a way, I tend to think of an actual hologram, which is created using you know, lasers, laser interference patterns uh, and you know, light beams and things like that, that those don't represent the whole message. Because if you take your credit card out, which is one of the few places you will see a hologram, you will, you will notice that uh, you can't you can't look down on the hologram from above or you can't turn the card over and look at it from the back. They yeah. are a limited view of something. Uh, and, and so the term hologram has, has become, as you say, in popular, in popular fiction, popular media, it's basically come, as a, it's, big, it's, it's really a catch-all for anything that is sci-fi 3D related. Right. Uh, and, and it's used and mis- misused uh, around. You know, everyone calls our stuff a hologram. Even internally, some of our staff still call it a hologram. I'm always trying to say, well, it's not. But when, when it comes down to, uh, I like to say it's not a hologram because it has a lot of, a lot more features than a hologram. And so holograms have really some interesting properties, one of which is you can cut a hologram into 10 little pieces and it turns into 10 individual little holograms. And that's a really interesting thing. Uh, but holograms, from a 3D point of view, they, they don't exist in signage anywhere. They, they simply don't exist. The terminology uh, used to describe things that you see in, 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 in signage and, and popular media is, is completely misused. And I, I like to go through them and categorize them into different, uh, different things. And those are, first of all, volumetric displays of which we're the only company in the world that's that's making a, a commercial volumetric display there's one other company uh ariel burton who are based in japan that make a volumetric display but it's a it's a very much a high-tech scientific prototype that uses lasers mm-hmm. to explode the air in, in very low resolution and then you've got auto stereoscopic 3d displays and they broadly fit into the categories of lenticular displays yep. um, which are uh, as you probably know, LCD panels, which have got a, a plastic lens array on them that allows you to see a left mm-hmm. and a right image. And those left and right images um, can give you a stereoscopic view. So those are 3D, uh, or, or I would call them stereoscopic displays because they're mm-hmm. not 3D. You can't, you can't look at them from any direction. They don't physically occupy three-dimensional Euclidean space, which is what the real world is. Uh, and those types of displays come in different formats. So you get some with just horizontal parallax, which means you can move your head left and right and see a number of distinct views. You've got some that you can move up and down as well and also get uh, a little bit of vertical parallax as well. And uh, and there's there's probably five or six companies doing those sort of displays. You've got Looking Glass and Devenko mm-hmm. and Lightfield Labs and Acer and Sodium. And so that's a 
that that area can grow the, the physical size of those displays can get bigger but the bigger they get the harder it is to move further away because your the pupil distance uh, means it's harder to get a 3d resolve a 3d view and also with any display like that the 3d the 3d image that you see because it's the result of you seeing two independent images with your left and right eye that 3d image can never leave the bounds or the window of the display so mm -hmm. when you're looking at and that's something you see in advertising which is very misused a lot is they show a 2D monitor with the image kind of leaping out beyond the border of the yeah. monitor, and, and that that just can't happen. That breaks the laws of physics, and so that's the kind of the that's the kind of three auto stereoscopic 3D landscape. And it's hard to say that auto stereoscopic 3D display because people kind of zone out and they go, "Is it a hologram?" And you go, "No, it's not. It's this." Anyway, the other types of 3D that's popular just now are obviously glasses-based display, AR, VR, mixed reality, mm -hmm. and uh, we don't really we don't really mind about that. In our, in, care about that because it's 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 something you have to put something on your head and that's our right. differentiating thing really it's something so those are for you an immersive experience where you go in down a rabbit hole and you're in another world and that's not what we're about and then you've got the fake 3d displays which are not 3d stereoscopically uh and but appear that way and that's that's where i kind of get i get slightly annoyed by those displays but i understand there's people making you know there's 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 types of a signage, I guess you would say, that are perfectly suitable for a scenario. Uh, and those are things like Pepper's Ghost, which is when you reflect a 2D image off a big piece yeah. of glass or plexiglass. And, and, and that's the, the Pepper, you know, the famous one, that was the, the Tupac hologram on right. Coachella. Uh, I, met, I met the guy and spoke to him, Ace Duran, who built that. He's a really lovely guy. And I had a good chat about that. And he, he knows full well that it's, a, it's an illusion. But mm -hmm. it's the illusion that was, you know, Disneyland have been using that illusion for many years. And it's a perfectly good illusion for a seated studio audience because they see someone on stage and they're doing it now with the, I think the ABBA show in London is a similar type of setup. Right. They call them holograms, but it's a 2D picture that's far enough away that you can be made believe that it's three-dimensional. And it might exist at different levels, like a diorama. You could have a stack of images, you know, on fly screens or whatever that appear to be layered, but ultimately they're 2D. And then the one that's come out recently, which causes probably the most amount of confusion for people, are the anamorphic projections on large billboards. Oh, and everyone's yeah. everyone's seen these displays on LinkedIn and YouTube, and they they tend to appear on large curved billboards in parts of China, where the <laughs> rental of the billboards is sufficiently cheap, as you can put these big images up there, film them from one one particular spot yeah. in 2D. And then put that on LinkedIn and have people comment on it and say, wow, that's an amazing hologram, even though A, they haven't seen it in real life, B, it's not a hologram and, and it's not even three-dimensional. It's, it's, a, it's a perspective-based 2D yeah. trick. Uh, and so what our, one of our challenges is, 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 is expectation management. And that is people see large-scale fake 2D images, fake 3D images, and then they they kind of conclude that it must be possible and they want to buy one. And then when they see yours, they go, oh, it's much smaller than I imagined. And, and it, you kind of feel like saying, well, it's, it's real. You know, it's, <laughs> you can, it's actually based in science and uh, you can walk around it. And that's the challenge we're at just now is trying to move away from this feeling uh, that you have to have the biggest display in the world for it to be valid. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of the, the, a lot of the business for us, a lot of the, a lot of the, 
uh, inquiries we get are from the likes of the Middle East, where they want to build very big, very impressive, very bright, very colorful displays. And, and they say, we want a hologram that will fit in a football stadium and fly around in the sky. Uh, and you kind of have to say, well, uh, that's great, but that's also impossible using anything that's even imaginable today, let alone physically achievable. Um, and so, yeah, we're very much of a case of trying to trying to be as honest as we can with the limitations, but also with the opportunities, because regardless of the fact that our technology is relatively small compared to large screen billboards, we have got the ability to create sci-fi related or, you know, sci-fi inspired interactive displays that you can fill, that you can put in personal spaces, in museums, in, in, in galleries, in shopping centers and they really do look like something up close mm -hmm. under scrutiny that you might see in a in a marvel movie and that's the kind of relationship we're trying to find with with other companies as well i mean there's other types of display as well i mean you, you probably talked to daniel about some of his displays which are you know levitating grains of dust and, and things like that and the challenge i have with them is yes yes you can make a, a 3d image but you have to look at how long it takes to make that 3D image. And they're really more akin to painting with light. It's a long exposure photography. Uh, you have to manipulate something and move it around over a long period of time to bring it to build a single image. Uh, and, and scaling those types of displays is, is, is impossible because the same with laser-based displays. Whenever you're moving a single dot around, you run out of resolution extraordinarily fast um, because it's a linear, it's a linear thing. And, even with Ariel Burton exploding the air with a laser, uh, they can only do about a thousand or two thousand dots every second, and that breaks down to being able to draw maybe a very simple two-dimensional shape. Whereas to draw to draw a, a detailed image, you know, uh, you know, an elephant or, or anything like that that we've displayed in the past, it requires upwards of thirty or forty million dots a second to do that, uh, with each image, you know, each volume containing millions of dots. So, uh, last couple of questions. Where where do you see this going in, let's say, five years from now? And are you, at that point, selling products or are you licensing technology to, you know, larger display manufacturers or, 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 or something else? Yeah. So, at the moment, what we're doing is we're looking for projects that we can scale. And our, one of our first projects that we're working on just now and the technology can be applied to a range of different industries. As you can imagine, any new display technology, it can be displayed. You could use it for CT scans. You could use it for uh, for, for advertising, for point of sale, for, for a whole lot of different things. But you have to choose those projects early on when the technology is immature that are low-hanging fruit, if you want to use that term. And so our low-hanging fruit at the moment, we believe, is in the entertainment industry, um, uh, digital out-of-home entertainment to be specific, which is the likes of video gaming uh, mm -hmm. in entertainment venues. And so 2018, we were in the Tokyo Game Show with one of our machines, and we were situated next to Tato, the company that made Space Invaders. And their their board came across, their, their senior members came across, and they played with our technology, and they really liked it. And so we entered into a, a conversation with them and uh, over several years we built we have built a space invaders arcade machine called next mm. dimension and that's using our rotating volumetric display with three projectors each running at 4000 frames per second uh, and a large rotating volume and we've we've written a new space invaders arcade game and tato have 
granted us the license to to bring that to market now in order to do that we're now uh, doing commercial testing so commercial testing and technical testing involves taking the technology into venues play testing it and getting the feedback from the venues as to as the suitability of the game and the profitability of it as a as a product so with with that game our plan is to follow in the footsteps of the, the previous space invader game which was called frenzy made by raw thrills uh, and it, it you know it's rumored to have sold three or four thousand units globally so if you could do that that's a that's a profitable first venture in terms of bringing technology to market and the plan would be for us at the moment we're looking to raise some capital we need to raise two or three million us to do the design for manufacture for that and build the first batch of machines uh, which would be rolled out globally now that that's really seen for us as a launch of the technology using the ip of space invaders as a carrier mm -hmm. kind of a, a launch vehicle for the technology but once launched and our, once our technology is widely known and understood what we then plan to do is build our own um, revenue generating model and technology platform that can be deployed to uh, venues around the world and used as a as a kind of an entertainment device where you can run different IP on it from different vendors uh, and do a sort of profit share with the venue owners. owners. So that could be, uh, you know, sort of cinemas, um, food chains, you know, the sort of Chuck E. Cheese, Dave and Buster's, those types of venues, as well as uh, bowling alleys, VR arcades, and, and all those type of entertainment venues that currently are starting to grow in strength, largely because people are now looking for entertainment uh, experiences not necessarily uh, you know just staying just staying at home so COVID obviously threw a spanner in the works as well when when our space innovators machine was sent to Japan for testing uh, COVID had just just happened yeah. so it went, it went into internal testing within Taito um, and then Square Enix who owned Taito their, their parent company decreed that Taito would no longer manufacture arcade machines but would license their IP only so that kind of threw a spanner in the works and they've come back to us and said, we love the game, but we want you to bring it to market, uh, not <laughs> us. So, so that's, uh, that's kind of one thing we're working on just now. There's a video of Space Invaders Next Dimension on YouTube that they can look at. And it's a, it's a really fun experience because it's a four player game. We've added the volumetric nature. You can fly up and down during sub games. You can bump your next door neighbor with your spaceship and get a power up. And it, it really is for us a way of saying, look, this is, this is a new way. It's a new palette uh, of which to make new gaming experiences, and you know the future is really up to the imaginations of uh, of of people writing software now. Hmm. All right, that was uh, super interesting. I I I I I learned a lot there, and some of it some of it, as is often the case, I understood. Well, that's great. I'm glad you <laughs> I'm glad you understand. It is a it is a it's a hard thing to wrap your hand, head around, especially for us trying to. Uh, demonstrate the uh, the nature of the technology in 2d youtube videos and linkedin videos and you really have to see it with your own eyes to mm -hmm. to understand it and that's why this week i was over for a meeting with ba systems but i took the opportunity to spend several days in london at uh, a film studio so in soho Finn london of the the owners very gratefully lent me a, a demonstration group there and i spent two days last week um demonstrating the product to have 10 or so companies come in and see the technology and it's only then when they really start to get their creative juices flowing and, and that's where 
um, POC concept projects kick off. Um, and so we're, that's what we're looking for just now is companies that have imaginative people and they have a need for creating some new interactive media that can be symbiotic with their existing VR and AR and metaverse mm -hmm. type stuff. Um, but really something that's designed for people up close and personal intimate experiences. So all right, yeah, if people do suggestions, if they want to get in touch, that'd be great. Yeah, that was going to be my very last question is, yeah, if they yeah. do want to get in touch, where do they find you online? So we have uh, we have our website, which is just www.voxon.co. Uh, you can find us, Voxon, Voxon Photonics is our Australian company name, and you can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, actually, my, my own personal LinkedIn is generally where, where I post most stuff. Um, that's a... Uh, Gavin Smith, uh, and at LinkedIn, you can look me up there. I'm Gavin Smith zero one actually. Uh, and then we have the Vox on Photonics LinkedIn page and we're on Twitter and, uh, Facebook and YouTube as well. We have a lot of videos on YouTube. That's a good place to start. Mm, but if you okay. want to get in touch, contact at voxon.co, uh, drop us an email and we'll be happy to have a meeting and a, a video call and show the tip. All right, Gavin, thank you so much for spending some time with me. That's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe you learned a thing or two. If you're new to 69, it's a podcast that's been around since 2016. You can click around the archive and find hundreds of conversations with smart industry people. If you're new to digital signage, you need to be reading 169 at 16-9.net. You'll find more than 8,000 posts by me and expert guest writers about this industry. 169 is not a press release republishing mill like a lot of this stuff out there. If something makes it on 169, that means it matters in some way to the business. Everything about 169 is free. Great sponsors make my work possible, and the key one here is ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. Check out all the curated and automated content available at screenfeed.com. 169, the blog and the podcast, are now owned by Spectrio, which does customer engagement solutions, most of that digital signage, for all kinds of businesses. You'll find them in the Tampa area and online at Spectrio. That's spectrio.com. You'll find me working out of a sunny back room in my house, located outside Halifax, Nova Scotia, on the east coast of Canada. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Haynes.